0: Good to be back with you all today. Thank you for a few days of uh, rest. My family and I had a great time in South Carolina, seeing another family celebrating Owen's birthday and seeing my family when we returned to North Carolina. So um, it was good to be away, but it's good to be back with you this morning. And let's uh, start off the year by hitting reset. So last year, we spent the whole year looking at the story of the Bible. This year, we're going back into our normal routine of going through books of the Bible. So as Chad mentioned, uh, during the announcement time, we're going through the book of Hebrews this, uh, not the whole year, January through the first part of June, we're going to be in Hebrews. Then we're going to look at the life of David for about 10 weeks, and then we're going to do 1 John starting in the fall. So Hebrews is what we're going to look at together starting today, going through the first couple weeks of June. So, let's think about the book of Hebrews. I'd like to frame it for you, so this may be a little bit longer of an introduction before I even read, just so you can have some things going on in your mind, because I want to set the course for the next roughly six months. So, if you're the kind of person that likes a a tagline for the book of Hebrews, uh, here it is. This is found in chapter 7, verse 16. If you want a simple phrase to understand the book, here it is. What we're gonna look at is the power of an indestructible life. That's how Jesus is described. The power of an indestructible life. Beloved, that's the life of Jesus, and by faith, an indestructible life becomes yours. And if you need some encouragement this year, to start off the year, just know because of Jesus, you can have an indestructible life. about that? I hope that fires you up and gets you encouraged. Um, Next, Uh, in the book of Hebrews, there are three big primary warnings of the book. And rather than treating those warnings as individual weeks, I'm actually going to preach those warnings into the entire section to which they belong. Make sense? Follow that so far? So this morning, I'm going to read chapter one, the first three verses. That's what we're going to look at. And I'm also going to read the first four verses of chapter two. That has the first warning of the book in it. And it's tied to what we're talking about in chapter one. Those warnings aren't just abstract things. But, you know, as we work through a book of the Bible, um, I think it's better for us to include those warnings in the whole section. So I'm going to read that warning as well. So just to... Just so you know, next week we're going to talk about that warning in chapter two, one through four again, and the next week until we get to the next section. Was that, got me there? All right. So that's why we're going to read the first part of chapter two today. Warnings uh, are are important for us to think about. All right. Last thing, and then I'll read. Um, I want to give you six takeaways for the whole year, not just for the book of Hebrews, but the whole year. This is me thinking through and putting together Hebrews, Life of David, and 1 John. So here are six takeaways that I hope you can think about them. I hope to learn them with you. I hope that these takeaways um, build up our gospel reflexes on a daily basis. The little short taglines that you can think about that I think apply to our everyday life. And let's learn these together. Here's the first one. Christ is better. So in all of our studies this year, you're going to learn these six phrases, these six applications, these six takeaways. Christ is better. Two, love is hard. Love is hard. Three, our hearts are restless until we find rest in Jesus. That's taken from somebody else, not me. I just like it and it fits. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Jesus. Um, life is full of ups and downs. Life is full of ups and downs. Um, here's number five. Warnings are wake-up calls, and we all need realignment all the time. Warnings are wake-up calls, and we always need alignment. And last, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. So hopefully this year you can fill in those those phrases with specific applications to your own life, ways that you see it in the text and the scriptures that we look at and study together. So listen to this. This is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, and then chapter 2, 1 through 4. Listen to this. This is the Word of God. Long ago at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In chapter two, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels provided to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Let's pray, and then let's jump in. Sound good? All right, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank You that we can sit under Your Word and that we can actually learn what You think. Lord, Help us not to come through these doors to your building and think uh, that we can check our brains at the door or that we're just here because um, we need to feel good or that we're here because we need uh, three quick steps on how to make our life better. Lord, continue to be changing us so that when we come here, we, we desire to understand you and understand your thoughts and understand your word. And then as we understand you, we understand our own lives. And in all of this, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring us to Jesus, that you would help us to behold Christ from the heart, that we would see all that our Savior is and what He has done, who You are, Jesus, and that we would continue to be transformed. Lord, we need to be transformed. We don't just need a little help here and there, a little direction here and there. We need to be transformed. So please do that in our lives through your word as you act upon us, Holy Spirit. We pray for your glory, Father. We pray for your glory, Jesus. And we pray for your glory, Holy Spirit. Amen. What I want to show you this morning, what we're after this morning is this. Uh, This is the point. Fixate on Jesus. That's the point of what we're talking about this morning. Three words. Fixate on Jesus. Jesus. That's what I want to show you from this text. That's what we're after this morning. Fixating on Jesus. Why we need it, why we should do it, and why we struggle to do it. Fixate on Jesus. Why we need to do it, why we should do it, and why we struggle to do it. So let's jump in. Fixating on Jesus. Why do we need it? Why do we need it? Well, look how this chapter begins. Look how chapter 1, verse 1 begins. It begins by telling us that God has spoken in the past. If you look at verse 1, it says he's spoken at various times and in various ways. If you were to read through the books of the Bible prior to Hebrews, what you would find out is this. This is how God spoke, and these are the various ways that he did it. Here's a sample. Go all the way back to the garden. God's speaking to his people, Adam and Eve, as he's walking with them. You continue to read about how he uh, appears to some face to face. There are also times in which he speaks to his people in a still, small voice. There are times that he appears and speaks in visions and in dreams. He spoke in the time of the prophets. He spoke in the times of uh, tracing out the history of his people. He spoke in various times and in various ways. But the text says, but now, in these last days, God has spoken through his son. So there are ways in which God spoke before, various ways and at various times. But there's something different about how he has finally spoken fully spoken now. And that is, he has made his final declaration, and he has finally spoken through his son named Jesus. That means that if we are going to understand what God wants and who he is, we have to understand Jesus That when you look at the life of Christ, when you read the accounts of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, what you get there is God himself speaking through Jesus. So that what Jesus says and what he does is to communicate and express the living God, God the Father. So that there is no more speaking by God. God's final word is, has been communicated through Jesus. And that means to understand Jesus is to understand the Father and who he is. So the reason why we need to fixate on Jesus is because Jesus is the person in which God has finally spoken. So if you're here and you wonder, what is Jesus, what does God want from me? Uh, what does he think? What does he want? Let me tell you where to direct our attention. To Jesus, because the whole point of Jesus is to communicate the Father. You see, in the Father, there is no unChrist likeness at all. They're that unified, so that when the Son speaks, the Father speaks, so that when Jesus acts, the Father acts, so that to understand Jesus is to understand the Father, so if you've ever thought That the Father is this cruel being and Jesus is the nice one. The Father is the bad cop and Jesus is the good cop. No, 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 no. Jesus has come so that we can understand what God the Father is like. Now, let me tell you what that means. What this means is that God has always been after relationship. You see, one of the foundations of relationship is what? Communication. God speaks through Jesus because he's communicating to us, because he loves relationship, he desires relationship, he's after relationship, and he always initiates. He's always speaking first. He's always pursuing. He's always communicating because he loves relationship. And that means if you'll listen to Jesus, you'll know something of God's relationship to you. How about that? It means that God is after relationship and that's what's being communicated with this first little phrase of verse one. But there's more. You see, all that stuff may seem a bit dry to you, you may have known all that before, but go with me here. This is gonna require you to put on your thinking cap. You need to think about this. I want you to consider the first audience that this was written to. Because I really want you to get the significance of what God is saying with just this phrase that we've talked about. He's spoken various times in various ways, but now, in these last days, has spoken to us through His Son. Think about the audience. First century, right? We got that? First century. You know that in the first century, the church exploded. That the the church of Jesus Christ started going everywhere. Churches were being planted in Corinth and in Rome and in Athens and in Ephesus and Turkey and all these places. The church had exploded. And you also know, more than likely, that there was lots of persecution. Even if you don't know a lot about the emperors of that day, you've at least probably heard of Nero. But there are those that came after him that were far worse in persecuting people. So there was not only the explosion of the church, there was also persecution, but I want to add something else that you might not have thought about before in order to understand the significance of this. The first century was a time of transition. It was a transition period. What I mean by that is there were tectonic shifts in the lives of God's people. There were deep, deep changes in the lives of God's people in the first century. Yes, they had seen the church explode. Yes, they were enduring persecution. But there was also a time of transition, a period of transition in which there was deep, deep change. And let me tell you, I'm not concerned that we won't understand the effect or the result of those changes because the result of those changes are fixating on Jesus, but what my concern is, is that we won't understand the depth of those changes. We don't understand intuitively what it takes to center our lives on Christ. That's what I'm concerned about. I'm not concerned about that you'll miss fixating on Jesus. My, my concern is that we won't get the depth of change that's required to center our lives on Jesus. Thinking about the first century, thinking about the original audience. Let me tell you what I mean. This book was primarily written to Jewish people. This was their life. Try to put yourself in their sandals in the first century. Try to put yourself in their place. This was their life. When they would gather together, these were things that they would talk about. You can find it sprinkled throughout the New Testament, it's everywhere. They had this history, right? When they would get together, they would say, well, my great, 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 great grandfather was of the tribe of Benjamin. We're royalty. And others would say, well, I was from the tribe of Levi. We're priests. They would break out these 12 tribes because it meant something to them. They would collectively say, well, I am from Abraham. He was my forefather. And others would say, oh, yeah, well, my people were ruled by King David, the greatest king that has ever lived. And my people were in Jerusalem when he was reigning. And they would have practiced uh, sacrifices for thousands and thousands of years. Do you get it? They would have to set aside money to buy uh, uh, lambs and goats and bulls, and they would have to offer sacrifices through a priest so that they could understand the gospel. Remember this? This was their history for thousands of years. This was their practice. Well, we would have to travel to Jerusalem a certain number of times a year. Well, some would say, well, God's, look, God gave us the law. He gave us his word. He didn't give it to other people. He gave it to us. And this land, this land in the Middle East, God gave us this land. It was called the promised land. It belongs to us. Can you feel the weight of that? Does that make sense to you? And now God is saying, in these last days, I've spoken to you through my son. And that means that if you don't connect Every part of your history, first century audience, if you don't connect every fiber and, and detail of your history to Jesus, then you really haven't understood anything that I've said for the pre- previous thousands of years. If you don't connect everything in your history, every practice, everything that you find significant to Jesus, then you've missed out on my message. You don't understand our relationship. You see, beloved, the first century folks that originally received this would be blown away by the significance of Jesus being the final word of God. So they had been used to going through a priest. Well, guess what? Jesus is that final priest. They don't need a priesthood anymore because the final priest has come. The priests in the Old Testament were all pointing to the final ultimate priest who was Jesus. The the law of God that God had given his people was showing them the perfection of Christ, that they could look at Christ and say, oh my goodness, he has obeyed every little detail, jot and tittle of the law. They would have to recognize that The reality that they would claim David as their king, David was just prefiguring the true and better David that was to come. Matter of fact, the New Testament even calls Jesus the second Adam. Everything in their history was pointing to the coming of Jesus and what he would do and what he accomplished. In the first century, they would have thought, well, this, this piece of land, this is our land, and they would have to come to grips with this. Jesus wants the entire earth. So you want to cling to this little piece of land, first century audience? You're not making the connection of what Jesus has done. You want to cling to your priesthood? You want to drift back into the sacrificial system you would think that you need to continue to make sacrifices? You don't understand who Christ is and what he's done. Do you feel the weight of that? I have no doubt in my mind that you can understand the result of what Jesus is, what God is saying to fixate on Christ, but do you feel the depth of the change? Do you sense what it would take if you had thousands of years of history to see all of that history in light of Jesus? That was a tectonic shift And there was a transition period in which God's people were learning and having to come to grips with the way that they had done things, had everything they did, everything about their life, had its ultimate expression in Christ himself. Now, I'm not sure that any of us have had that close a relationship with thousands of years of history like that, you know? So let me tell you some tectonic shifts that have happened in my own life, that have had to happen and need to continue to happen in order for me to fixate on Jesus, and perhaps in order for you to fixate on Jesus. Shifts that have to happen in order for us to understand what it means to focus on Christ as the center of everything. Here's some of them for me. Perhaps this is true for you. I had to come to grips in my life with the Bible going from a two-part story to a four-part story. I had to come to grips with realizing what is a man-centered message versus a God-centered message and the reality of recognizing when I'm under one and not hearing the other. Here's another big shift that's happened in my life. Purpose and meaning are derived from something to someone. Big shift in my life, still happening in my life. Where I get purpose and meaning, where purpose and meaning aren't derived from something I do, but where my purpose and meaning are derived from someone, do you have an idea who that someone might be? Jesus. Another shift that I've had to come to grips with the point of Christianity, the point of Jesus' message, is not the salvation of individual souls, as much as it is the restoration and redemption of everything. People coming to Christ is really, really important, but it's set within the context of what God is doing in the world and what God ultimately is going to do with the cosmos. Big, deep tectonic shifts that have to happen in order for me to center my life and for my life to be centered on Jesus. See why we need to fixate on Jesus is because God has finally spoken, ultimately, finally spoken. There's no more moving beyond Jesus. To understand God, and nobody wants and nobody thinks, we can't move beyond Christ. There's nothing beyond Jesus and to feel the weight of that in our lives, and to recognize that those in the first century were going to have to give up, in a way, give up things that they thought made them really spiritually important, except that they had not connected all that to Jesus, to where Jesus was the main thing. So now God is saying, look, fixate on Christ. Fixate on Jesus. You don't need to be worried about this little land piece anymore. You got the whole earth. You don't need to worry about going through a priest. You got Jesus. You don't need to worry about sacrificing animals. Jesus is the final sacrifice. You don't need to worry about your kings. Jesus is the greatest king. And it's through him that you understand me, God, and our relationship. Well, that's why we need to fixate on Jesus. Here's why we should do it. Here's why we should fixate on Jesus. Look at the second half of verse 2 through verse 3. There's a list there. We'll go through these quickly, but hopefully get to the heart. Here's why we should fixate on Jesus. He's the heir of all things. See that? We just looked at this at the end of the year. Beloved, we just looked at this in Revelation. When it says that Jesus is the heir of all things, what that means is one day heaven and earth will be reunited. Like the earth is his inheritance, remember? God will never surrender the earth. The whole point of us living here is not that God's gonna destroy the earth, he's gonna purify it. And we should fixate on Jesus because He is the heir of all things. And that, this is what it means for you and me practically. You have a future. Your future is that you'll be with Jesus in a renewed earth and renewed heaven together forever. You have a future because of Jesus. And he's the creator of all things. Did you notice that, the next phrase? He's the creator of all things. In other words, for Jesus, excuse me. In other words, without Christ, nothing was made that was made. Without Jesus, nothing exists that exists. Jesus created. And what that means for me and you practically is that you were made by him and for him. Really? Really? So when you have all these insecurities about who you are, what you look like, what you think, what you feel, oh, there's something that's much deeper than that. What's deeper than that is you were made by God and you were made for God. That's what this is saying, And it's not just that he created, that that he's the heir of all things and create all things. Look at what it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the express imprint of who God is. Do you know the difference between the sun and the moon regarding light? You know the moon has no light in and of itself, right? When you see the moon in the sky, it's, it's reflecting the light of the sun. But the sun has light in and of itself and radiates things from its essence. Get it? This is telling you that Jesus doesn't reflect the light of the Father. He doesn't reflect the glory of the Father. This is telling you that he is, he radiates the glory of the Father that he has it within his own being. He radiates the glory of God, which means he radiates life, he radiates health, he radiates holiness, he radiates love and compassion and justice. It all comes from who he is. And the fact that it says that he is the express imprint of God's character, of God's being, what that is saying is that there is a distinction That the Father is glorious and the Son shares in that same glory and radiates it from his being. But this is saying that Jesus has an imprint of the exact character of God. That when you read the gospel accounts and you read what he says and you look at how he reacts to people, he is showing you the character of God so that he not only radiates the glory of God, he is an exact imprint of God's being, of his character, of his essence, of his substance. And here's what that means. It means he's superior to us. He's not like us. In some ways he is, but what this is saying, oh no, this is the part we focus on how different he is. This is how glorious he is. This is how amazing his character is. He's not like us. And we should fixate on him because he's not like us. And that should humble us. Should bring humility into our lives. As we fixate on Jesus, we can't continue to be proud, in other words. To fixate on Jesus is for us to be brought low and humbled. Then look what it says. He upholds all things by the word of his power. This isn't telling you, this isn't telling Dave, that Jesus can hold up more weight than anyone else, although that is true. This is saying that he upholds everything, that he actually moves everything to their intended telos. He moves everything to its purpose, to its end, to its goal, that he has that much interaction in what's going on. He upholds all things. He carries things along to their intended destination. And here's what that means for you and me. He can handle any problem that I have or that you have. Whatever frustration, whatever loss, whatever your problem is, whatever your struggle is, he can carry it. You can give it to him. You can count on him being there with you. You can count on him being uh, able to deal with whatever you got. He can do it. Then look at what's next. It talks about redemption and reigning. Do you see that? He purified sins through his blood, right? And now he's reigning, seated. seated. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. What that's telling you is that Jesus actually accomplished something through the cross that he literally made a payment for sin. He literally satisfied the requirements of what sin has incurred. It means that he is able and he did actually save you. He actually did it. He didn't just make it possible, he didn't even make you saveable. He saved, he paid you penalty. And he's now at the right hand of the Father, sitting down, which means in a way, He's at rest. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. Jesus accomplished what he came to do, and now he is at the rightful place and at the throne of God, and he's seated, which means he is very satisfied to reign from heaven. There's not a future day in which he will begin to reign. He's been reigning since the ascension. He's been reigning since he left earth, and he's seated watching and ruling and overruling in everything. Beloved, what that means for me and you is this, that he will never be caught off guard with anything. It means that when we get in situations where we get anxious and are fearful, we can think about Jesus being on the throne and it can help dial back that fear a little bit. When we get concerned, we can remember Jesus is on the throne and think, "Oh, maybe I need to get some perspective here. Maybe I need to fixate on Jesus a little bit more and not fixate on what I think is happening and how I'm reacting to that. Well, that's why we should fixate on Jesus because creative power belongs to him. Effulgent glory belongs to him. Salvation belongs to him. Sustaining power belongs to him. Reigning majesty belongs to him. Why we should fixate on Jesus is because of who he is. And that leads us to this. Why do we struggle to do it? Why do we struggle to fixate on Jesus? This is where chapter 2 and the first four verses help us. There are two reasons that we struggle to fixate on Jesus. Chapter 2, 1 through 4 gives us the first one. If you go back and read chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, this is what you find. You find this, that we've heard the message. The message has been proclaimed. We've heard it from people who were eyewitnesses. If they were the first century in the original audience, they would have known people who were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus and witnesses to the explosion of the church. We're removed from that, but this audience isn't. They've heard the message, but notice what it says, that we have a danger of, here's the first warning of the book, drifting There's a danger within each one of us. We struggle to fixate on Jesus because we are prone to drift. Don't you think it is easier to live life just drifting? Don't you find that easier? Really, I do. It's easier just to drift through life, not get too serious about this, not get too serious about that not be too committed here, not be too committed there. It's easy to just drift through life. We struggle to fixate on Jesus because we would rather drift. It's easier. And if I need to say it another way, there are other things in our lives that are far more captivating than Jesus, right? Following, chasing money, you don't think that's more captivating at times than Jesus? Uh, chasing experiences? You don't, you don't think that's more captivating than trying to fixate on Jesus? Uh, mindless entertainment. You don't think that's more fixating and captivating than trying to focus our attention on Jesus? How about our own comfort? Thinking about our comfort, making decisions based upon our comfort wanting to make sure that we stay comfortable, isn't that oftentimes more captivating to us than fixating on Jesus? How about achievement? All you overachievers in the room, pretty much all of you, isn't it more captivating to achieve something, to go after something? The challenge of that, the struggle of that, the, 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 the pain of that, but the joy of that, but yet also, if we're honest in retrospect, the emptiness of that. But the next one's going to be better. It's more captivating. We struggle to fixate on Jesus because it's easier for us to drift. Our hearts are drawn to other things. Other things are more captivating. And here's the second reason why. We struggle to fixate on Jesus. Deep down, we know if I get close to Jesus and start studying and thinking about Jesus, I'm going to have to change. I'm not sure I want to. We struggle to fixate on Jesus because to focus our attention on him, you can't read about Jesus. You can't read the gospel accounts and think to yourself, wow, this guy's pretty amazing. Glad he demands nothing from me. You can't read the gospel accounts and think, what a stand-up guy. Now I'm fine just being a jerk. You can't. There's something within all of us that when you see uh, someone who is unbelievably compassionate. Let's just start there. Then when we see someone who's unbelievably compassionate, we instinctively think, oh, that is not me. But I, I, I want that. I, I, I need him to be compassionate toward me. I guess that means I need to be compassionate toward other people. And you can go on down the list when you think about Jesus, right? Right? There's something. We struggle to fixate on Jesus because we know if we get too close to him, we're gonna to have to change, and we just don't want to. You see, the challenge of the first four verses of chapter two. Remember, you've heard the message. It's a danger of drifting. Look at the phrase in verse one of chapter two. Beloved, we need to pay more close attention. Something like that? We need to pay closer attention. Let me tell you Dave's translation of that. We need to fixate on Jesus. We need to fixate on the gospel and fixate on the message that we've heard because we're always in danger of drifting. You see, You, We all will know when we're fixating on Jesus and deep change is happening when this starts going on in our lives. You can know, I can know, we can know together that deep change is happening and fixating on Jesus is happening when these things start to happen. Here's one. The first one is, sorry, I forgot. We'll go with the New Year's theme on this one. When our focus shifts from making New Year's resolutions or having a verse for the year or having an idea for the year, when we start shifting from that kind of mentality to Thinking about God's faithfulness and God's commitment to us. Tectonic shift. You can't fixate on Jesus while you're still fixating on yourself. And a box you want to put God in for the year. Because let me tell you, this is who God is going to be for you this year. God. And you know and I will know when I'm fixating on Jesus when I start shifting from thinking I need a verse for the year. I need an idea for the year. I need to make a resolution about what I'm going to do this year to be different to, Lord, help me to see your faithfulness this year and help me to express it and articulate it and help me to recognize your commitment to me. You know the tectonic shift is happening when the Word of God is changing in your life. It's no longer something you go to when you need something inspirational, when you need something motivational. The Word of God is not um, advice. When the Word of God becomes the thing that searches your heart, and when the Word of God begins to get into your motives, and when you read the Word of God to get the gift of Jesus. You know that you've been fixating on Christ. I know that a tectonic shift is happening in my life when I don't read the Bible and hope to find some motivation or some piece of advice. And I'm looking to see how is this exposing my own, what's going on in here? And how is God exposing that to give me Jesus? Jesus. Man, that has been a long, hard, hard, hard lesson for me that I'm still coming to grips with. We know that the tectonic shift is happening when we don't come to worship when it's convenient to check off a box. A tectonic shift is happening when we come to worship because it's the rhythm of our lives. And this is the place where we are learning how to give ourselves away. And we do that through sincerely confessing. It's not checking a box to confess our sin every week. It's the opportunity that God gives us to say, Lord, this is what's really happening in my life. This is how I haven't loved you this week like I should. I haven't loved my neighbor like I should. And where I get to get blasted with your grace and forgiveness not checking the box. We're coming here to give our life away, not just through confessing, but giving. Lord, I'm gonna live by faith. You've given me everything I have. As an act of worship, take my resources and further your kingdom. It's when we come to worship to give ourselves away by actually listening to someone who has more authority than any of us. His name is God, and he speaks through his word. It's where we learn to live this week in accordance with his blessing. To just anticipate, it's a disposition. If you hear me saying, take the blessing of God and turn into your to-do list, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the blessing at the end of the service becomes the disposition by which you approach the entire week. To know that he's going to be with you and bless you and keep you and be gracious to you. Oh, Lord, yes, help me live into that this week. Beloved, we know that deep change is happening in our lives. When we begin to live our lives, not from a vantage point of what we can get, but when we live our lives as if we're receiving everything. We live in a culture that wants us to think about tomorrow in terms of what I can get. And God saying, All is gift, beloved. Live your life as if everything is a gift, where you're receiving everything. You know, Jesus gives us a weekly opportunity to fixate on Him. You know that? He gives us a weekly opportunity to fixate on him where we have to think about who we really are and where we have to think about who he really is. He gives us an opportunity every week to slowly, steadily drift back toward him every week. And that's what brings us to the table.